Ladies Marive, Agus Falta Estoc, Mary Kennedy here, and you're welcome to my first series of Senior Times podcasts. It's often been said that we are a nation of storytellers. I believe that to be true, and I am hugely impressed by the number and the quality of women writers that we have in Ireland. On this podcast, my guest is Rachel English. Rachel, you're very welcome. And Thanks, uh, so many people will know you as a journalist, a broadcaster on Morning Ireland, but not so many as a novelist. And I really loved your most recent novel, Paper Bracelet, your fifth, but the first to be published in the US. Yeah, it's, it's um, I suppose, first of all, I was late coming to writing and um, yeah, so I, I never, I just looking back, I mean, if, if I'd have thought when I was writing the first book that very quickly I'd get as far as five, I, I wouldn't have expected that. But I think writing is one of those things that it is addictive. And, and once you start, it's very difficult to let it go. I was very impressed in Paper Bracelet, Rachel, by um, the humanity and the feeling. Sometimes it's cruel, sometimes it's warm-hearted because it's a very sad story about the mother and baby homes. But the journalistic knowledge that informs it and the research is so strong. And I suppose that's not surprising uh, given your background. I'd love to read uh, an excerpt from the book. Um, now, this is the scene where the girls in the mother and baby home, they're sent out strawberry picking and they begin to rebel by singing. They were a ragtag bunch, their stomachs swelling against their ugly uniforms, their hair tied up in top knots, their faces pink from heat and exertion. They'd been assaulted, abandoned, discarded, left in the lurch. They'd been branded, insulted and punished. They were sluts, tramps, whores, fallen women. Their babies would be taken from them without consideration or permission. And still they sang. That just seems to me, Rachel, that you are quite literally giving these unfortunate women a voice. That's what I wanted to do. Thanks, Mary. I appreciate that because more than anything else, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted them to be real because I think sometimes it's very hard when you're faced with a subject as huge as this. We end up maybe seeing people as just one homogenous group that, that you know, they there they were, weren't they sad and weren't they misfortunate? And of course, they were, the women we're talking about were in many cases very misfortunate, but they were also people. They were real. They were sisters and daughters and mothers and friends. And some of them, no doubt, were very funny. And some of them probably weren't. And some of them were probably really clever. And some of them probably weren't. And, you know, and some of them were probably compliant and others were probably devils. And I wanted to try and get that across to, to bring out their the humanity of, and I suppose it wouldn't have to be a mother and baby home that you were talking about, any institution where people are different and, and you know, they're entitled to their differences. You gave them um, an individuality and you also gave them uh, dignity. There's, there's respect from the, the narrator's point of view, but not always respect then from the, uh, the institution. Yeah, I, I think it's important. I think the whole thing of respect is very important here because the more... The more I read 
about the experience of women who'd been in mother and baby homes and the lives that many went on to forge afterwards. I mean, a lot of times you would have to be in awe of what people went through. And then they went out and they got on with lives and sometimes their lives were difficult and sometimes they weren't. But what a thing to have gone through at a very young age and to have been given no choice over a very, very important decision mm. and to have been treated in such a way. And then to try and have to make your way to negotiate your way through the rest of your life. So so I felt it was important. I felt they really deserve that that dignity and that, that it's important that, that we think of the women like that rather than being sort of victims or, or you know, sad God help us figures that, that you know, these are amazing people mm. and they're all around us. And they were given in your book, different names, uh, which I felt was very insulting and also probably a device so they couldn't trace each other after they left the home. Mm. I'd read about this, that that in some cases this did happen and it was supposedly for their own protection, you know, so that their their identity, w- w- you know, wasn't, wasn't known to the wider world so that when a letter arrived for, say, a woman called Eileen, that instead in, in the home she might be called Amelda so that it was impossible to trace her and everything. But... It's a terrible thing to take somebody's name to tell them that while you're here, you know, not only do you have no freedom and not only do you have no choices, you don't even have your own name. Like, it's a very basic thing. Mm-hmm. Were you shocked by anything that you came across? Um, yes, there were bits and pieces that that even though I would have thought that I was familiar with the story of these institutions, um, yeah, there were things that maybe I shouldn't have been shocked by, but it had never occurred to me. Like I remember reading one particular story and it did really shock me. And it was about the fact that in some instances, if the, the, the women were essentially prisoners, even though they had committed no crime. In fact, in some cases, they would have been the victims of a crime. And that if they tried to escape the home, they were in some instances brought back by the Gardaí. And I kind of thought, well, what business was it of the Gardaí? Like I said, they, they'd committed no crime. It just, it seems unbelievable. Mm-hmm. I remember I did find that shocking. Like, what must that have been like? Mm-hmm. Um, so in the book, there is there is one character who, who does manage to escape. And I, I think she was... Really, the idea the idea of her came to me very much from, from reading that and thinking, God, imagine having to escape then or, or thinking that your only way out was to, it was to literally run away, knowing that you would be treat, treated like an on-the-run prisoner, which just does seem extraordinary. And in cases, the, the heartbreak of going through the trauma, giving birth, and then for the baby not to survive, that's, uh, you know, and then for the records maybe not to be... Yeah. yeah, I mean, the Horrible. records thing is, is another, it's another part of this story, which does, it does beggar belief that there are so few records in many cases. I mean, I'm thinking in particular of Bespera in Cork, which which is a home that would, would be known by many people. It was a huge home for very many years. It only closed down in the mid-1990s. And in Bespera, there are hundreds of children who died and it's not known where they're buried. There are no records. And this is something I know that the Mother and Baby Home Commission is looking into. But it does seem extraordinary that there could be literally hundreds 
of missing children. Mm-hmm. It, it's just, again, like you think every time you think you can't be shocked by this story, something else comes along and you realise, I never thought of that. Mm. That is really shocking. Especially, as you say, because it's in the recent past mm. that Bessborough closed. Yeah, I, I was in Bessborough um, very briefly as a young reporter in the RTE newsroom. I, I went down to do a piece um, with a number of women in Cork who had formed a support group. They were trying to find their birth mothers and they found that they were getting the runarounds. And again, they were being told that there were no records and just, just you know, to let it go. And I, I was in Bessborough briefly. I mean, I remember looking through some of the records. And that was so recent. That was, I don't think I appreciated it at the time. It was 1996. And, and apparently that was the year that it closed. Mm. It just, it, again, you know, the, the, the mind boggles that mm. this is so recent. It's not, it's not ancient history. Maybe sometimes we see the black and white photographs and think, oh, that was another time. That was, a, that, that was another era. It's nothing to do with us. But again, it is still a story that, that lives on and on. Mm. Yes, and the the fact that it's in the past now and that you've made such a an alive story out of it and such a relevant story, um, it's it's a great book. Uh, how do you feel about the completion of it? Uh, I suppose the thing is with books, you you've I find like, and I think many writers would say this, you go through oh, it's so up and down. You know, sometimes you think I'm really pleased with that and then other times you might open it and think, oh God, there's a million things I'd change. But of the five, it's probably the book I'm fondest of and it's probably the book that's closest to what I wanted to do or to what I set out to do on day one. You know, it's... it's, And also, to be fair, I think it was it's probably the book that, that I put the most work into as well. And maybe that... Sometimes it takes that, that you have to write. I know there are many, many people who write brilliant debut novels, but I wasn't one of them. And I think for most writers, it does take you a few books to get into your stride. And not that long ago, um, Patricia Scanlon, who I'm a big fan of, said to me that, you know, where I was at the moment, that, that she was quite envious of it because it's a nice position to be in. You've sort of written a few books, so you've learned your craft to a certain extent, but it's still fresh enough to you that that there, there you still have enough ideas in the locker that, that, that you know, you're kind of, you're not concerned that the ideas are going to dry up mm-hmm. because it's still, at the same time as you having learned a certain amount of your craft, it's also still relatively new to you. Do you think you might continue along the historical path for, for another novel? Yeah, I like the idea of trying to combine the past and present and trying to explore the connections between people's lives now and their connections either in and, and lives in the recent past, which, which is the case with the paper bracelet or the, the book I'm writing at the moment. The connection is between two women, one in present day Ireland, one in present day the United States and a woman who lived during the famine. So it's three stories and they start out as three very different stories, but gradually, I hope, they come together. Mm. So you get a lot of satisfaction, I I'm do. presuming, out of doing the research and going to the libraries and that. Do yeah, you? I do. I'm so, I'm such a nerd for it. In fact, I spend far too much time at it. I, you know, I was only thinking today, but when I, on my way here, I was thinking, gosh, you know, I wonder if I should have done history at college. I, I didn't, I didn't come to appreciate it until now. Maybe it's that there are now, it's now so much easier 
to find out about everyday people and everyday lives rather than history being, you know, when we were at school and it was big battles and <laughs> political decisions big and the books. likes. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas now there is so much information online in particular through either the National Library or the local libraries. I mean, the one I've been relying on for the book I'm writing at the moment is the Clare County Library. And the information that's online is just breathtaking. I recently came across, they have the, and God, this is very grim, but but it's it's so fascinating at the same time, the, the records for the Kilrush workhouse for eight, the early 1850s when there would have been huge numbers of people living there and they have, they have the, the death records. And I mean, most of those dying were very, very young. Mm. And you read the surnames and they're all the surnames you know they're you know they're all the local names and you think gosh everybody around those parts must have a connection to this book or to that list in one way or another and it's very moving but I, I find it hard to read it even online without getting kind of emotional, emotional. about it mm-hmm. um because it's just when you see the names and you know just pick a, say, a typical West Clare name, Downs, say, and you go down through the list and you see, you know, Biddy Downs, seven, you know, Mary Downs, 12, Pat Downs, 14. And you think, gosh. Heartbreaking. But those records are there now and they they maybe give us all a greater sense of what life was like. Well, I'd say they have a particular resonance with you, Rachel, because you grew up in County Clare, in Shannon, in the... Um, I can remember when it was uh, built. It was so exciting and it was uh, a model town, wasn't it? It was, yeah. It was very, I was seven when we moved to Shannon Mm. and it was, it was unlike anywhere else. My mother always says, she still says it was the loudest place she ever went in her entire life because before that we were living in the country, whereas in Shannon, like there were so many children, just so many children. Everything was packed with children and there were lots of playgrounds and the schools were really busy. And it, yeah, it was, it was, it was so different. I suppose the obvious thing is, A, not only was everything new, but B, nobody was from Shannon at that time. We all came from somewhere else. So that gave it a completely different flavour. It also had this state-of-the-art library that everybody was impressed with. And I presume that that was part of your uh, your social life at the time, was it? Yeah, when we first moved there, it was before the library was built. And the library was actually at that time in a flat, an empty flat in a block of flats near the airport. And then they there was a big expansion in... The late 1970s, as far as I know, and a lot of libraries, newer libraries around the country would have been built then. And I remember we got this new, shiny, literally, because most of it was made of glass library. I remember at the time, like we all thought this was the most amazing building ever. And and it was a great place. Yeah, it was, it was, it's a fantastic, it's a fantastic library to this day. In fact, I was at a thing there a few months back when it was still possible to go to <laughs> events in libraries. And um, yeah, I, I think it's probably fair to say that library had quite an influence on me, all right. And what kind of books did you like to read? Um, we're talking about the days when there weren't a lot of young adult books in a way, the way that 
there are now. So my memory is that you kind of went straight from the children's section to having felt that you'd read just about everything there to, I remember being guided by the librarian in the direction of the um, Agatha Christie shelves, because like every library maybe in the world, there are just shelves and shelves of Agatha Christie books. And there was this kind of sense of, you know, they're short and they're they're relatively easy to read. You can't, okay, they're a bit gruesome, but you can't go too Could far wrong books. there. Yeah. Yeah. So so I think I think I read most of the Agatha Christie books at about the age of 13 or 14 and then moved on from there. If you're enjoying this podcast, why not subscribe to Senior Times, the magazine and website for people who don't act their age. Or maybe you have a loved one or a friend who you know would love to read more. You can buy a subscription and have the magazine delivered direct to their door. To subscribe to Senior Times, visit the website at seniortimes.ie and like us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash senior times. Your free travel card can be used on all Expressway coach services. Despite restrictions, we're staying on the road. Whether you need to attend a medical appointment or for any other essential journey, remember to travel with Expressway. Expressway. Keeping Ireland connected. Here's your chance to win a top-of-the-range smartphone, a Doro 8050, designed specifically for seniors. Doro are market leaders in creating phones with clearer sound and larger text, one that's protected if it falls or can alert others if you do, and makes staying in touch with family and friends simple and enjoyable. At Doro, they are dedicated to helping seniors live a better life without compromise. Doro helped to make ageing an independent, secure and rich part of life. As you know, age is just a number. All you need to do to win a Doro 8050 smartphone, kindly provided by Doro, is go to the website www.seniortimes.ie and follow the instructions. To see the full range of Doro phones, visit www.doro.com. The lucky winner will be announced on the Senior Times Facebook page. Doro Phones, making technology easy for all. Say hello to our Premium Plus e-paper bundle interactive replica edition of the Irish Independent, Sunday Independent and The Herald. Every paper, every day, delivered to your tablet, phone or desktop for less than €3.50 per week. Subscribe at independent.ie. Up close and independent. Were your parents um, really, you know, supporting your reading and going to the library? And They were. Now, my father wouldn't be a great reader of fiction. Um, but my mother always was and always encouraged me to read and would have read to me a lot when I was small. And to this day, we swap books a lot. And I also, when I'm writing something, I'd write a few chapters and then send it to her to oh. see what she thinks. Now, because she's my mother, she's never going to criticise it. <laughs> but I can kind of get a steer from what she says, as in, if she says, oh, I really like so-and-so, say a character called Pat, I think Grant's so more Pat. <laughs> and if she says, oh, I'm not sure about Lorraine, I think fine, so less Lorraine. So, um, so she's a good barometer. She is, mm. yeah, she's great. Your mother is English, isn't she? She is, yeah. Um, my father, like God, so many people went to England in the late 1950s. Um, and But unlike a lot of people, he didn't go to London or Manchester. He went to rural Lincolnshire and he worked with horses there. And um, my mother lived in the next village. Wow. And she came back to Ireland with him in the 1970s at a time when 
I think that would have been a relatively unusual thing to do. Well, I suppose Shannon was new, so there was mm. uh, there was innovation there yeah. to begin with, and and there were others besides English people, weren't there, coming through Shannon? Oh, it was like it was. You know, I was saying earlier, it was unlike anywhere else in Ireland at that time. Well, there there were a very large number of people from the north, from Belfast in particular, who had moved south because of the Troubles and who got houses and jobs in Shannon. Um, which which gave it quite a quite a different flavour, say, to maybe many other towns in Ireland. And then also there were an awful lot of returned emigrants as well. Like I would say in my class at school, the number of people who were born in England and in a few cases in America. And I think I remember there was a girl in my class who was born in Canada. There was like lots of people whose parents would have emigrated and then came back in the 70s because they heard there were jobs in Shannon. And there were also, there were there were refugees in our class from Chile um, who came to Ireland um, as part of a refugee programme after the government there w- was Pinochet. overthrown. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, um, yeah, we were a real mix and gather them all right. Everybody was a blow in, which made it better, you know, because there was no, like everybody was from somewhere else. It, that it must was, have been very invigorating and energising, was, was it? It was great. Mm-hmm. It was, it was great. And, um, and to be fair, Shannon is still like that. Um, I was at home a couple of years ago. I was at Mass on Christmas Day and the parish priest um, was going through, you know, things to be thankful for this year. And one of the things he mentioned, and it was so touching, was he said, and we were lucky this year to be able to welcome four families, I think it was, from Syria. And aren't we fortunate to be able to welcome people to our lovely, peaceful town? I thought, gosh, yeah. some things don't change. And, and, and that was lovely to hear. Yeah, that really was. I'm I'm always amazed as well when I meet people who I was at school with or who were in Shannon in those years. People always talk fondly of it. And I think to outsiders, maybe that comes as a bit of a surprise because they look at it, you know, it's very modern looking, it's housing estates. It doesn't look like anybody's idea of a traditional town. And sometimes outsiders can be surprised to hear how much of a community spirit there was and what a what a great place it was to grow up in and it genuinely was. Because of your love of books, were you tempted leaving school to go the, the writing route straight away? No, in the sense that it just wasn't something that people I knew did and I think many writers would say that, that it just... You know, I've said it before, but it's true. Like even wanting to be a journalist seemed a bit notionsy. You know, <laughs> so um, wanting to write just didn't. Oh, I, I just it, it wouldn't have featured in my thoughts at all. If I'd have thought of writing, it would have been as a newspaper reporter, or maybe as a feature writer, or an interviewer. I mean, I knew I wanted to be a journalist, but no, it's not really something that I, I that, that would have featured on my radar. Not not at all. But journalism did. You decided to go that route, and you went to study in NIHE Dublin. Yeah, I did. Um, when I was seventeen, off I went. I kind of look back on it now and think. I know this this sounds ridiculous, but I'd probably only been to Dublin four or five times in my life. And um, I wouldn't have been able to find my way from Grafton Street to Henry Street. Like I knew absolutely nothing. And, you know, when I say four or five times, like that would have been to the National Museum, to a pantomime and to a couple of concerts. Like that would have been it. I knew nothing. Culture shock. Yes, but I loved it so much. 
I, like I really did. Um, I just, I think that was, that was the mid to mid to late 1980s and Dublin just seemed so exciting, albeit kind of seedy at times and run down and remember the state of the keys and everything. But I think it like it was, it was a very, it was quite an exciting time in Dublin back then. They're just, to be, to be a teenager, I think in Dublin then was, there were just so many bands and everything. Yeah, it just, I just loved it. I did. And did you go away during the holidays or? I did. Um, I went to went to London after first year and then a gang of us went off to Boston after second year, going into our third and final year. So I spent that summer, 1988, in Boston on a J-1 visa, which, which eventually, not that I could ever have imagined it at the time, which eventually gave me the subject matter from the first novel I wrote going back, because maybe, maybe the idea had always been there in the back of my head in the sense that it was so different, so very, really? very different, that in a way that maybe the same difference wouldn't be there now between going between if you went from Dublin to Boston now, I mean, then little things like we'd walk around the supermarket being amazed. <laughs> I know that I'm making, I'm making the 1980s sound like the 1880s, but <laughs> it, it just at the sheer variety of food, you know, you'll remember, like Ireland at that time, there were kind of two types of bread. There was either soda bread or a white sliced pan. And oh, there was there were two flavours of ice cream. There, there was, you know, there was vanilla or there was raspberry ripple. And then you go into this place, you think, God, this is amazing. Here's your chance to win a top-of-the-range smartphone, a Doro 8050, designed specifically for seniors. Doro are market leaders in creating phones with clearer sound and larger text, one that's protected if it falls or can alert others if you do, and makes staying in touch with family and friends simple and enjoyable. At Doro, they are dedicated to helping seniors live a better life without compromise. Doro helped to make ageing an independent, secure and rich part of life. As you know, age is just a number. All you need to do to win a Doro 8050 smartphone, kindly provided by Doro, is go to the website www.seniortimes.ie and follow the instructions. To see the full range of Doro phones, visit www.doro.com. The lucky winner will be announced on the Senior Times Facebook page. Doro Phones, making technology easy for all. Your free travel card can be used on all Expressway coach services. Despite restrictions, we're staying on the road. Whether you need to attend a medical appointment or for any other essential journey, remember to travel with Expressway. Expressway. Keeping Ireland connected. Say hello to Independent Weekend Home Delivery. Save up to 40% with the Irish Independent and Sunday Independent delivered to your door every weekend. Plus, enjoy premium access to independent.ie and read our interactive e-paper edition all week long. All from just €5 per week. Search for Independent Home Delivery now. So, Rachel, between growing up in Shannon in County Clare and your first novel being published in 2013, you forged a really successful career as um, as a, a journalist and a broadcaster. I, I sometimes feel like I was very fortunate to have worked through the 1990s. I think the 1990s were such an interesting decade in Ireland and so much changed and things that we thought would never happen did happen. And I'm thinking in particular of, say, not only peace 
in the north, which is such a huge, huge thing, um, and which as a child or as a young person, as a teenager, when truly awful things were happening, you could never have imagined. But also the fact that when I was leaving school, there was 17% unemployment. People expected to leave Ireland. You you kind of expected almost, it was ingrained in you that you expected everything Mm -hmm. to be grim. And then if you lived through the 90s, I'm not saying it was joy from start to finish. And obviously there was a lot of dark stuff emerged in the 1990s as well. But to be a journalist at that time, both on the one hand that the country was opening up, but in so many ways, not just the North and the economy, but also maybe that for the first time there were lots of things we started to speak about. And we started to talk about abuse. We started to talk, to, you know, to kind of bring us back to where we came in almost, right. about the institutionalization of people, about the abuses of the past, about the way we treated each other. And so it was just a really, really interesting decade. Mm. So I suppose as much as anything, yeah, if I could pick an entire decade, that's it. And all the time, were you uh, harboring kind of thoughts of maybe writing fiction? Oh, I think I'd, I think I'd given up on that. I, oh. may, I may have, when I was in my early 20s, it was something that I was interested in. And then... Everything else takes over and you have to earn a living. And I, you know, I was lucky. I wasn't in a position where I think I may have started writing sooner if I'd hated my job or my job hadn't been interesting. But when you enjoy your job and your job is interesting and gives you opportunity, you know, you're less likely to turn to something else. So it wasn't really until, gosh, it took me, I mean, I was... I was, what, in my early 40s before I decided that, yeah, if I don't give this a go, I'm, I'm never going to do it. So, so you know, I'll give it a go. Don't have to tell anybody. Don't have to, you know, say anything about this. I'll just plug away at it and see how I get on. It's so different, though, when you think about it, because writing uh, a novel is a very solitary pursuit, whereas you're part of a, a team mm. when, you're, when you're in radio. Yeah, I mean, that's the... That's the great thing about broadcasting, about be they regular TV programs or regular radio programs, they are very much a team pursuit, like, and it really is about the team. And I like that element of it. But there's also, with writing, there's nothing that you're constantly challenging yourself and you have to maybe fall back on your own resources a bit more. And I do, I do like that as well. You know, it is a bit antisocial and, and maybe sometimes all of us are a bit antisocial that we like just, you know, withdrawing to our own head and, and trying, to, to, trying to, to, to come up with stuff from there. Except that it is antisocial, but there seems to be a great camaraderie and uh, network among the Irish women writers. Yeah, people people have been fantastic to me since I started writing. And Claudia Carroll, who who you know, um, I remember she she, came, she said something to me around the time of my first book, and I thought that's so true, and I must remember that. That she said when she was because Claudia is also an actor. She was saying when she was going for parts, there's only one part, and only one person can get the part. But just because I get a book published, it doesn't mean you can't get a book published as well. And that you have to remember that, that there's actually, there's no reason not to help each other and look out for each other. And that also, actually, the way it works is if an Irish author's book does well internationally, say, there's going to be more interest in Irish authors 
generally. I mean, I think it's fair to say that there are probably a lot of Irish authors, female authors in particular, who have books that have come out over the past year or two that have probably been helped by the success, say, of Sally Rooney, because there's more of a, there's more of an interest, more of an awareness, and oh, there, there are good stories coming from that country, and maybe it's not the country you thought it was. Mm. And, you know, so, so I think one person's success can open doors for a lot of other people. You mentioned your mum as mm. being your confidant, and uh, I suppose that she keeps an eye on the, the characters as they're developing. And I'm just wondering, how did she and your dad um, get on during the COVID and the lockdown? And, and you as an only child, were you very worried about them? I was, and I probably shouldn't have been, because actually they've been brilliant. I've been really taken aback by how good they've been. Uh, and I, again, I shouldn't have been, but their ability to cope with everything that was going on and to be good humoured about it is just astonishing. I don't know how I would have handled it if there, for a couple of months I'd been told that I could hardly leave the house. Mm. Um, but like so many older people, I think, you know, they were, they were phenomenal. Maybe it's because if you are older and you lived through very tough times, um, you do have a certain resilience to fall back on that maybe sometimes the rest of us don't. Like, I'm very fortunate to still have my parents, which in a way maybe, maybe makes me feel younger than I am because that they're still in good health and, you know, it's still possible to, to say, have a night out with them or whatever. So maybe that, that makes me feel younger than I am. So, you know, maybe, maybe my parents should have been worrying about me rather than me worrying about them. They were fantastic. And how was it for you? Um, in a way, the writing was kind of useful to have because I had been used to that element of you just have to sit down at the kitchen table and get on with your work. Um, I was doing Morning Ireland from home what all was that the time. Like? Um, very odd to be presenting <laughs> it like from, from the table, you know. it's it's. Um, but then you got into the swing of it and there was an appreciation that we were fortunate to be able to do that. And also an appreciation that it you know, it was a certain amount of normality maybe that a lot of people didn't have during those months that you still had to get up in the morning and do your work. You show enormous empathy um, in what you've just said. And it's obvious from the paper bracelet as well, the book, but it's also obvious, I find, when you're on radio, you've got a, a warmth and a, an understanding and a compassion. You're, you're very warm-hearted. Is it okay to say that about oh, gosh, you? Gosh, you're very kind. No, that's <laughs> true. I feel a bit embarrassed <laughs> now. Um, I don't. I mean, I don't know that that I am any more so than than anybody else. I just. I think maybe I've been doing the job I'm doing long enough, and I've had enough contact with people that it's taught me that you do you do have to think sometimes about, you know, about the listeners and about the positions that people are in and try not to be glib about mm. things. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, it's a cliche, but like a lot of cliches, it's true. You never know the struggle that somebody is going through. You just never know. And we've all been in a position where we think somebody is the life and soul of the party. And then one day you learn their true story and you go, geez, if only I'd known. And, and that, 
I, I try to remember that. And, you know, most of us don't remember it a lot of the time, but it is, it is a thing that, 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 you know, you need, you need to remind yourself of every, so and, every now and again. And I think COVID has really emphasised that, that you don't know, you know, say some people found homeschooling really hard and then to be told that they should also have been knitting scarves or baking bread or whatever during that time is, you know, can, can we can we just relax a bit? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think that's a very nice uh, note on which to end, that we, we don't know what's going on in other people's mm. lives. And um, that's what you've done. You've shown us what was happening in other people's lives with uh, the paper bracelet. Congratulations. Oh, thanks, um, it really is an important, an important novel and every good wish to you with uh, the next one, Rachel. Thanks. Rachel has real commitment to her writing and to her research. Do you know, her journalistic knowledge and investigative mind stand her in very good stead. And in this area of historical fiction, I reckon Rachel has found her niche. This Senior Times podcast was produced by Simon Marta and engineered by Mark Murphy.